Now, whether you're a part or have a part in that Christmas presentation or not, uh, I want you to think in terms of playing a part in a drama, all right? Because the reality is life is one big, huge, long, drawn-out drama for us, and everybody has a part to play. Every one of us are cast members in this drama that we call life. Now, with that in mind, I want us to go to a passage of Scripture now, and I want to take a different take on this than what we normally do when we come to this. This is one of those passages of Scripture that nearly everybody's going to know. If I were to poll this audience about key elements of this story, even if I just give you the highlight of it, you'd be able to fill in the details almost certainly. It's one of those famous stories out of the life of Jesus. And so because of that, we we have to be careful when we come to these kinds of passages because we already know what it says. And the problem that we have with that is we often lose what it means and especially how it applies to us because we're just familiar with the story. So what I want to do today is I want to kind of build off of what's going to be happening up here over the the next couple of weeks uh, and, and our life as it is. And I want us to find our place in this story. One of the best ways for you and for me to study Scripture, especially in these parts of Scripture that are narrative, it's the story part of the good news of Jesus Christ. One of the best ways for us to get it is to plug ourselves into it. And so today what I want to do is find four different places that we might plug in. All right, Four different cast members, actually it'll be five before it's all said and done, places that we could plug in. And in fact, I'm going to just argue from the very beginning that we already plug in here. You will find yourself in this story somewhere, or at least I hope you do. I really hope that you find yourself in the best roles. Well, maybe not all the best roles. We'll look at it in just a second. So here we go. Luke chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 5. If you've been with us for a while, your Bible probably kind of naturally falls open right there. We've been in Luke for a long time now. And in Luke chapter 5, we pick up the story. Last week, we saw where Jesus uh, cleansed the leper and healed him. And now we're going to pick it up with this healing of the paralytic. And so in Luke chapter 5, verse 17, we read these words. On one of those days, as he was teaching, that is Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with this bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? You got to, got to believe that that shocked them, that he was speaking to what they were thinking. Why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, and he picked up what he had been laying on, and he went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So here's the first person I want us to see. The first cast member. Now, I hope that you don't identify with this too much, but you might. Matter of fact, there's a good chance that all of us do. The first one is the star of the whole scene here, and that's Jesus. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. We've been in this for a while. We know that Luke is laying out a gospel, a picture for us of these snapshots out of the life of Jesus. And with that, he has said some things about who Jesus is. And whatever else you say, you got to pull them all together and say, he's the star of the show. Now, I'm going to stop there for what should have been a great amen moment for you. But I'm going to go on now, okay? Jesus is... Don't, don't, do, don't try it now. You missed your chance. Jesus is the star of the show. But now in Luke's gospel, what we've seen is that Jesus is on the loose now. Jesus is on the loose and he is wreaking havoc everywhere he goes. Now that may be a little strange language for us in our nice little safe Baptist church. But the reality is Jesus is on the loose. And where he's going, he is wreaking havoc. He has touched their traditions. He walked into their synagogues. These Jews, these ones who were so tied to the law and so tied to being the people of God and their synagogue services and what we find with Jesus when he walks in there, he opens the scroll and he starts teaching them and Luke records for us and the people were amazed because of the authority with which he was teaching. Oh, he's on the loose. (laughs) He's wreaking havoc with their traditions because they never heard anybody teach like this. Even the souped-up guys from the seminaries, since we had that here not too long ago, even those guys didn't teach like Jesus was teaching. He's on the loose. And he's wreaking havoc in the kingdom of Satan as well, as we've seen these people who were demon-possessed, and Jesus steps into their world and cuts loose on them. Or better said, he cuts them loose. There's a question, no question at all. Jesus is the star of the show. But you see, that's a problem for some of us. I guess if I don't want to be especially nice and I don't really want to watch the way I'm talking about this today, um, then I'm going to say he's, this is a problem for most of us, this Jesus on the loose, star of the show. By the way, it's a good time for me to say, if you came in here looking for a nice little comfortable Thanksgiving sermon, there's always next year. This one won't be that. Okay? There's problems for us in this passage of Scripture. You see, the problem that we have at this point is Jesus has always been the star. He's always been the lead character in this drama called life, called history. He's always been that. Let me give you another point of reference. He will always be that. There's a verse of scripture that says there's coming a day that every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. Okay. He always has been, he always will be, which means he still is the main character of this story. 
But our problem with that is we like that role. Is that not true of your wife? No, wait a minute. Let me don't say it that way. Isn't that true in your life? Don't you like to be the star of the show of your life? I was watching TV. You know, sometimes uh, we find truth in some of the most unusual places. I found some yesterday watching the television news. I'm, I never expect to find the truth watching those things, but I found some yesterday. And I know it has to be true because I saw it on two different news stations. One's the conservative one, and the other one is one of those that are not conservative news channel organizations. Uh, and both of them had the same story here. Maybe you saw it. Especially during the holidays, it's a good thing for us to hear. Here's what they said. Psychologists are concerned that we as parents and grandparents are taking too many pictures of our children. So let's have a phone check. Let's just look at your phone and see how many pictures you have of your children. That's even in case you happen to be children. How many pictures do you have of yourself? Aha. So don't tell me that you don't have a problem wanting to be the star of the show. You see, psychologists are telling us, back to the phone picture thing, uh, or to the picture thing, they're telling us that research suggests that when we continue to take pictures of our children or our grandchildren, we begin to instill in those children the belief that all of the world revolves around them. Hello, that is not new information for us. Before we ever had cameras, that was the root problem for all of humanity. We always believe the world revolves around us, or in a perfect world it would. You see, we don't like Jesus, some of us, maybe all of us. We don't really like him being in the lead role. So we tend to nudge him aside because sin does that. Sin always pushes self. It doesn't matter what it costs somebody else. It's about me and it's about mine. So let's don't miss this before we go. I mean, this is kind of one of those duh moments of this. This ought to be the shortest discussion of all of them as we go through this. Jesus is in the lead role of the drama of your life. Okay, let's go to the second one. That's the easiest of all of them for us. How about the crippled man? Verse 18, he comes on to say, I'm intrigued by this because it's the way we tend to deal with this passage of Scripture. We give the crippled guy and his four friends the top shelf billing most of the time. Oh, here's this guy, man. He's on this pallet and they take him up and they get him up and they can't get in and we'll talk about that in a minute. So they go on top of the house and they start tearing the house apart. Let me tell you something. Don't do that at my house, Okay. If you need to see me, just schedule an appointment. Don't tear the roof off of my house. Well, I'll get ahead of myself. Let's come back to that in a minute. So the crippled guy, he's in the story, if you really look at it, he's almost an afterthought. He's a mechanism for Luke to get across everything else that's going on. But you know, that's kind of only fitting for first century Jewish life or 21st century American church life. It's only fitting that there would be somebody in there who has genuine needs who happens to be the one who's marginalized in the whole story. He's crippled. In first century Jewish life, that means that he was 
He was at the mercy of people. One of the main pillars, tenets of Jewish righteousness was that they would give money to support people like this guy. Okay? Give alms to the poor. That's the way we typically say it. One of the main things, if you wanted to be a Jewish, righteous kind of person, you would do that on a regular basis. But I want you to get behind that enough to realize this guy, by definition, is marginalized in society. He doesn't count. How many people would walk by his pallet on some busy street somewhere and just throw a piece of money at him just so that they could do their religious duty, but he didn't matter to them? Churches are full of people like that. Maybe you're one of them. You walked in here today, and maybe you had to stumble in here because you're physically crippled. Good news for you. Jesus healed this guy. He still heals people. That's right. I know in Baptist church, that shakes people up. What are you talking about healing? Well, we've already talked about that, okay? The reality is Jesus is still in the business of healing people. So if you're that person with a physical crippling of your life, assume the role. And Jesus steps into your reality. But more people walk into our churches these days, or don't, who have a different kind of crippling about them. They're emotionally crippled. Psychologically beat up. And people like that, people like you and like me, come walking and stumbling into our churches desperate for someone to notice. Teresa and I knew somebody like that years ago. The reality that you've come to know about me in two and a half years now is that uh, I'm far from having it all together spiritually. Occasionally, I don't mind kind of opening a window so that you can see just a little bit how much I don't have it together, uh, maybe as a way to help you realize that we're in this together. Teresa and I went off to college. Our son was three months old, the only child we had at that time, and um, moved to Plainview, Texas. And uh, because we were married with a child, they let us let us live in married student housing at Wayland Baptist University. Okay? What that means is you go to the smallest closet you have in your house and knock out one of the walls, and that's kind of what we lived in. All right? um, and one of the things about this was, was just off campus, about a half a block off of campus, or one block off of campus, and between the campus and us was one of the girls' dorms. And um, so... Because I was in the uh, Christian Studies division there, I started rubbing shoulders with other students who were going to go into ministry. Uh, but there were a couple of classes that at Wayland Baptist University every student had to take. They had to take New Testament and the, uh, survey, and they also had to take Old Testament survey. So everybody on campus sooner or later had to go through that building. Well, in the process of that, uh, I also started working part-time as a music minister at a church out in the middle of nowhere, First Baptist Church of Halfway, Texas. Immediately halfway between Quarterway and Three Quarterway, Texas, and for real. <laughs> and so these people that I was rubbing shoulders with in the Bible building 
some of them started going to church with us. And so this church of 70 or 80 people all of a sudden had 15 and 20 college students going to it, which really shook them up a little bit. That's the next group we'll talk about in a minute. Um, so all of that is the background for me to tell you about this girl named Sudi. Now, this has been a very long time ago now. I remember her name was Sudi because I'd never before met anybody named Sudi and have not since then. So for a long time, that's, Sudi was just unique because of her name. But then Sudi became very needy. Do you understand this term, needy? Hello? Are you all there? Right? All right. Needy in this case is... Sudi lived in that girl's dorm that was about a half a block away from us, a vacant lot between us. And so she started going to church with us, and that was all fine and good, except uh, over a period of time, Sudi, I guess, really became friends with Teresa. Let's say that. Okay. She became... (laughs) And Sudi would hang out at the dorm in such a way that she could look at our house, and then as soon as we got home she would be at our front door. You know, now, every once in a while, that's okay. Now, maybe. Uh, let's just say, every once in a while, that's okay, all right? But in her case, it wasn't every once in a while. It was every time we pulled into the makeshift driveway we had there, Sudi was showing up. And Sudi was needy. And Sudi was clingy. And so every time we tried, I mean, I, I was working two jobs, going to school full-time. Teresa had a little baby at the house, uh, and we were coming out of some really tough days in our marriage. We were working on being married and learning what that meant and loving each other. And, all, and Sudi all of a sudden was there. And so it got to be where it was um, a distraction. I want you to picture this guy in our story again and people walking past him as he's laid out on the ground there, needy to be sure, maybe flipping him a coin or so, but going on their business, not concerned about him. That's Sudi and us. And over a period of time, when I was, I, I mean, I met her, one night she came over like that, it was like at midnight or something, late at night. Well, so you knock on my door in the middle of the night, you're going to meet Mr. Smith and Wesson when you, when you're just going to meet him, okay? And it just blew her away that I, somebody would even have a gun, much less go to the door with one in the middle of the night. Hello, Sudi, work with me here. But you know, we got to know her. And her story began to just tear pieces of our heart out. Sudi was not wanted in life. Both of her parents at some point had said, we don't want you. Matter of fact, we don't want you to the point, we're not going to have you anymore. And so she went to live at an orphanage and was raised by a bunch of Baptist people at Buckner's. And they raised her up, and that was the reason she went to Wayland Baptist University. It was a lifeline for her. And she had a lifetime of rejection of people saying, you're not good enough, you don't count, we don't want you in our lives. And I found myself broken because it was the exact feelings I had developed towards her. And I'm a horrible person. 
I get that. But you know, the fact is that these people, the crippled people, the Sudis of our life, they pack our churches every Sunday. And they come in and they're hurting and they just need somebody to just act like they care for one hour. This guy... He's not the star of the show, but there is no show here without him in this passage. And we so easily move right past him because the reality is it's just a little uncomfortable when we get called to task over the fact that we don't care about people. You see that number one part of us, the first thing we talked about, the pushing in on Jesus' territory, that part gets in our way here because those kind of people don't help us be number one. So let's go to the third group. It just gets better from here. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving. The next, the next group, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the scribes. This is where if it was really a drama, I would say cue the ominous music. Boom, boom, boom. One of those days, Jesus was on the loose, wreaking havoc, teaching And the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, were sitting there. Now, this is a significant development, okay? In Luke's gospel, this is the first entry of these guys into the scene. Now, we all know that this is the group of guys who will see to it that Jesus is killed on the cross. This is their first entry into the story as Luke tells it for us. Why are they there? Well, now, I, I suppose we could be nice, but we don't want to be nice because they're Pharisees, after all. But we could be nice and we could say, well, maybe some of them needed healing. Maybe some of them recognized this is the greatest teacher of our time. Let's go listen to him. But the reality is that's not how Pharisees operated. And the teachers of the law, it says, and later it calls those another group within that whole group of Pharisees, the scribes. Their whole purpose in life, this two, or yeah, it's really two groups, it's one big group, the Pharisees. Their deal was they believed that the children of Israel were under Roman oppression because the children of Israel had abandoned keeping the Mosaic law. And so the law of the covenant that we find in the Old Testament, they believed Israel had let that go and their whole development goes back a couple of, well, a a period of time before this. And so now they've kind of graduated to this point where they are the ones who are the watchdogs to make sure that all of you dirty people out there keep the law correctly so that God can bless us the way he should. They're the watchdogs. I'll use a big $4 word here. Their whole deal was orthodoxy. It was to keep the law in its rightful place in the lives of people. And the scribes then, this group of people underneath it, they were the ones who kind of helped to interpret some things. Because after all, Ten Commandments are really too difficult to understand. That, you know, do not murder. That that just leaves, that's so vague. So they go from ten to 613. That's much easier for the common man to figure. Well, it's not, and so they figure that out. So now they start developing ways that they can just kind of keep it on top of people. You're not living the way you're supposed to live. Oh, my 
goodness. Tell me our churches are not full of those kind of people. Church I came from had a family of plumbers. Their last name was spelled F-A-I-R-E-S. Ferris. So I always called them the Pharisees. Well, not to their face because they were all big guys, plumbers, right? I'm just kidding. Some of them have visited here. Okay, they're our friends. But you know the Pharisees in churches? It's that group of people who believe that it is their job to make sure that all you people toe the line when it comes to the Word of God. Oh, my goodness. This is the part where the preacher goes, this could be my last sermon, and I understand that. We have to hear this, folks. One of the things, I'm going to come to this, but I'm going to go ahead and say it now, drop it out there, let you know I'm not just picking on those of you who tend to be Pharisees. Well, I know it's not in this service, I'm sure. They're in a different church, I'm sure. The problem with these people, do you see the story? Look at it again. They are there because they got this renegade on the loose wreaking havoc guy out there. He's just a carpenter. How could he possibly have any authority when he teaches the word of God? Doesn't fit. It's a problem with people like that. They decide what the mold is, and then if it doesn't fit, then they just lop people off. You know what the problem in this passage is? These guys miss the work of God. Here's a guy marginalized by society on his crippled bed, and Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. You see, that didn't set well with him. The reason they accuse him of blasphemy is because in Jewish mind, many of them believe that the reason the guy was on the pallet in the first place crippled was because there was sin in his life. That's why Jesus addresses that end of it first. Your sins are forgiven. And the the watchdogs say, you can't say that. Well, actually... The picture that we get here is that they're not even saying that. Oh, you've seen that in the Pharisees, in churches? It's the look that goes. And they miss the work of God in this guy's life, except Jesus won't let them. Is it? He just smacks them right in the face with it. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? It's easy to say either one of them. The deal is one of them has tangible proof. The other one you just got to take his word for it. So what does he say? I've already said your sins are forgiven. He uses language, by the way, Greek language. It says it's a done deal and it continues forward. (laughs) That's a big word. Your sins are forgiven you. But for the sake of the Pharisees, go home. Get up and go home. I wonder what his buddies did right about that time. Hot dog, or in South Texas, that's what I'm talking about. That's why they took him in the first place. But the Pharisees, they didn't get that. All they get was, it's just as we thought, why we came from Jerusalem in the first place, this guy's suspect. One of the things, I want you to hear me carefully now. I'm about out of time. Uh, I need to say this. I want you to really hear me carefully. If you're going to call me a heretic, at least you need to quote me correctly. One of the things that we 
must do as a church is hold to the authority of Scripture. I cannot state that strongly enough for you. We must hold to biblical truth. And I will add to that, we must have a dogged determination to interpret it rightly. Okay? That's not as easily done as said sometimes. We have to be firmly committed to the authority of Scripture and to the responsibility we have to interpret it correctly. I use as an example in the first service. We can say we hold to Scripture, but when it gets to the interpretation part of it, that's why we have so many different churches and so many different denominations, because we differ on how to interpret stuff. But you realize, let me just take the classic case in point for us as Baptist people. We call ourselves Southern Baptist people, which is not so much a regional distinction as much as it is just kind of part of our name now. But when we started off as Southern Baptists, one of the lynch marks of who we... That's the wrong way to say that. One of the uh, strong positions that we held, and the reason we became Southern Baptists is because many of those Southern Baptists in the early days believed that slavery was biblical. So those of you who own slaves, slink down in your chair now. But see, nobody does now. The reality is that when we started as a denomination, there was a group of people, a strong, influential group of people that said it's biblical for us to have slaves. They had them in the Old Testament. Hebrew people were slaves in Egypt. Must be okay. We find in the New Testament where Paul deals with Philemon and all of that stuff, and Paul didn't just outright say you shouldn't have this slave, so it must be okay. But we don't believe that. We've come to see that Scripture needs us to be responsible in the way we handle it. That's another good place for an amen, but that's okay. We'll get there. One of the places that we, if you're going to go to Scripture, go to the full teaching of Scripture. So Paul says in another place, because of Jesus Christ, there is now, therefore, no slave nor free. There is now slave, neither slave nor free. He also said that neither male nor female. One of the questions that's been come, that has come to me from one of our search committees is whether or not, you remember we're looking for a youth minister and a children's minister? One of those committees has come to me and said, is it acceptable for us to consider a woman for one of those positions? You know what my answer is? Well, let's look at the next group here. <clears throat> Let me tell you what my answer was to them. It is not important what I think. It is of utmost important what Scripture teaches. We're not going on opinions on this thing. We're going to figure out what Scripture says. So I'm going to lead that committee through a Bible study. You're welcome to be part of that if you want. We'll find ways to get it out there. But we're going to look at what the full teaching of Scripture says relative to a woman in a position of teaching either children or youth. I'm not going to tell you which committee it was. Now, some of you already are more concerned about that little statement than you are about the statement about churches being full of marginalized people. Beware the Pharisees who hide behind a big club that is used 
to beat people into submission to their orthodoxy, regardless of what Scripture might say. And they miss out on the movement of God in their time. How tragic. When God's at work and they miss it because they're in charge. Last group. That's the next to the last group. I've got I to fly now, so let's do this quickly. Verse 18 and 19. These guys get a lot of play usually. I'm not sure we get it right, but they get, it, they get a lot of play. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring. Isn't this interesting? That finally somebody cared enough for this guy to get him to Jesus. But you know, it wasn't just as easy as getting him to Jesus. Now, I know we emphasize Jesus looks at their faith and he says this stuff. Uh, I, I just kind of want to say, maybe we should look at this in the overall context of what Luke has been saying here. Uh, people all over the place are doing this. They are flocking to Jesus and bringing those who are sick and ill with them. Okay, These guys are just like other people. Hey, this dude's doing something. I got a friend with a need. Let's get him to Jesus. But that's not even all of it. It's not just let's get him to Jesus. These guys say we will not be deterred in getting our friend to Jesus. Even if it costs you money, Mr. Homeowner. Since I'm out of time, let me just cut to the chase on this point. Are you so impassioned to get your friend to Jesus that nothing will stop you? I've been saying for two and a half years that God strategically places each of us in a circle of people who desperately need Jesus Christ. Do you have a passion for those people to know him, to meet him? Are you undeterred in your intent of getting them there? See, I think, I think that as 21st century American Christians... We have a moderate concern for them. It's not like impassioned because those people are, you know, those people are weird religious. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. I, I, I'm, I'm praying for them. Well, that's good. If these guys have been praying for their friend, he, he might have gotten healed somehow. Praying wasn't enough for them, I don't think. Matter of fact, if I read that right, Nothing was enough for them except we're getting him into Jesus. Even if we have to step on somebody else. Now, I'm being careful about this, that marginalized people thing again. But See, I think our moderate concern gets the best of us. I, I had this issue years ago. I was good for nothing when I was in high school and right out of high school. You think I'm bad now. You should have known me then. And I, I spent time with about five, six guys. We were the heart of the soccer team that I played on all through high school. And um, as we all got out of high school, we started just kind of doing everything together. Uh, and when I say doing everything together, any chemical that was produced was fair game. Spent days at a time, all night, you know, that kind of thing. And 
Um, one day, coming out of soccer practice, uh, actually the, the last end of soccer practice, there was a group of guys who pulled up and sat on the hood of their car watching us play soccer. Well, we admired their wisdom because we were certainly worth watching. That's back to that we all want to be Jesus thing. Um, but they hung around. And when soccer practice was over and we closed up with all the stuff, they still were hanging around. So we walked out of the gate. These guys were sitting on the hoods of their vehicles. Uh, and one of them said, hey, man, you guys uh, look good, whatever. He said, uh, I want to tell you about Jesus. And I mean, like that, I got mad. I got straight up mad. I was already a Christian. My dad was a pastor. Okay? I was doing everything I could as a Christian to distance myself from Christ. And so I got mad. This guy started, and I told him, I said, I'm a Christian already. I jumped in my car and took off, but my buddy didn't. About an hour, hour and a half later, he caught up with the rest of us, and he came over, and he said, man, I just got to tell you, those guys, I got saved. I wish I could tell you that I was happy for him when that happened. I was mad. Is that position any worse, really, the way I was about that? Is that any worse than the way we tend to be today, which is to just kind of go through our day and not bother telling anybody about Jesus? Which is worse? These friends said, essentially, I'm putting words in their mouth, but I think it's consistent. They said, nothing will keep us from getting our friend to Jesus. So who's your friend? Who do you feel that way about today? The last group here is the crowd. It's the last verse of that passage. We, we sang about it. I prayed about it. They were amazed. How long has it been since you've been amazed at what God did? One of the reasons that we don't get amazed about what God did is because we don't have a passion for people anymore. We just go to church. Let's blow in, blow out. We did our church thing. Now let's get about our business. No wonder people are going, I don't need that church stuff. Let's pray. These are tough messages to preach. And I know they're tough to hear. Father, we don't like this stuff. We like the little drama that we've got built on the side. We don't really like to be called into account for being the storytellers that you've said we are. So we ask first that you forgive us. My intent is not to beat any of us up. Father, you know I'm first among many sinners at this point. We need help. We we get so misfocused. We let stuff rise to the surface that really is trivial and inconsequential in the overall drama of life. People all around us are dying. Some of them are living long lives of death. We carry with us and in us the hope 
is Jesus Christ. So we pray that as necessary, you'll break us. We pray that you will be gentle in the process, but break us nonetheless. Make us passionate people. In Jesus' name we pray.